Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am enjoying a snowy day. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Norman Mailer, dead these last 13 plus years, is canceled. Uh, at least that's what Michael Wolff is reporting in the newly beefed up Ankler newsletter, a must-subscribe news outlet, by the way. Check it out. Uh, Wolf writes that a junior editor at Random House complained about an upcoming collection of Norman Mailer's political writing timed to the centennial of his birth, uh, particularly Miller's classic 1957 essay, The White Negro. And as a result, the publishing house is scrapping plans to publish it. Well, technically, Random House says that they aren't scrapping plans to publish it. They were, you know, they never agreed to technically publish it. They're just not going forward with the book, despite having paid somebody to compile and edit it. Sure. Why not? Um, there are two big points in Wolf's missive, both of which deserve discussion and scrutiny in this section. The first is the idea that a junior editor somewhere, perhaps serving the function of a quote-unquote sensitivity reader, was able to kibosh a collection by one of the most celebrated American authors of the 20th century. Some on Twitter were skeptical about this, rightly so. I think that, you know, a little bit of skepticism about any such story is justified. But anyone who has followed anything in the book world over the past few years, from the ugly fights over young adult literature uh, to the cancellation of Woody Allen's memoir by Hatchet, uh, realizes that this story has at least a whiff of plausibility. I don't think it's, I don't think you can dismiss it out of hand. The second big point is just how big the publishing houses have gotten. And here I think is a more, more interesting and more worthwhile avenue of discussion. As company after company has consolidated, the world of publishing is down to a handful of major houses, uh, sparking antitrust concerns. Indeed, the Biden administration's DOJ a couple of weeks ago soon, Random House, uh, I'm sorry, Penguin Random House forgot that they had merged, uh, and Simon & Schuster to attempt to stop the merger of those two giants, which would bring all of them under the banner of German megacorp Bertelsmann. Uh, Alyssa, is Norman Mailer too troubling to publish these days? And second part of this question, if there was more competition, would it really be a problem? Could they just take it somewhere else and say, hey, all right, if, if Penguin isn't going to do it, Random House can do it. If Random House isn't going to do it, Simon & Schuster will do it. Is this a two-part bifurcated problem here? I, I think it is two-part bifurcated problem. I am I'm quite skeptical that things unfolded exactly as Wolf has described here. Um, in part because I, it, it's Michael Wolf. No offense to anyone who's a big Michael Wolf fan, but the guy doesn't. I would say always have the goods that he claims to have, and so I would be very curious to read more reporting on this from a less tricky source, certainly. And look, I think that someone writing like Norman Mailer did, you know, if the copy was coming in fresh today, uh, the stuff would probably not be published. But it's impossible to deny that Mailer has a major role in American literature. And there are other solutions to sort of contextualizing and analyzing him that don't involve just running away from him as if his reputation is terrifying. Like, he exists. He's a significant influence, uh, whether you like him or not, whether you think his work has stood the test of time or not. And if I were, if I were the publisher, I could see any one of a number of other solutions. Uh, you know, publish the collection with comment, you know, commentaries from contemporary writers on each piece. Um, something that you know could make the collection richer and more interesting in any case, could make it more of a valuable, you know, volume to potential readers who either 
really appreciate Mailer's work, have read it extensively, but want to read commentaries on it, or people who are reading it for the first time and frankly could use a conversation about his work that places it in some sort of context rather than just reading and being like, who is this guy and why was he able to write like this in the first place? Um, And yeah, look, I think that it is possible that the volume will find another home, but it's not just a question of whether or not the volume will get put out, but whether there will be promotional resources behind it, whether, you know, it will get circulated in advance review copies. If there, you know, there's a di- there is a difference between being published by the equivalent of Penguin Random House and by like self-publishing something on Amazon. And right. it's silly to pretend that there's not. And, you know, I think in general, the consolidation of the media industries that's happening across sectors you know, I think should be worrying to a lot of people because it's not just Norman Mailer who is going to end up in trouble here. It's going to be young writers who are controversial or challenging in different ways and who are just going to have fewer options um, with the resources to get their books out there in a significant way in the first place. Yeah, Peter, I mean, the the big issue here, again, for me, is the the consolidation of the the book industry, which has kind of uh, not only continued, but ramped up, really. I mean, you, you, you are, we're down to, what, like, five, either four or five major houses if this uh, this this deal goes through, uh, which, you know, has significant effects on what gets published and what sort of, what sort of advances are paid out, what sort of, uh, you know, uh, authors are approached in the first place, right? I wouldn't say that it has uh, no effect. It obviously has a significant effect on the market, but markets evolve. And this just, the the consolidation of the book industry does not strike me as particularly troubling here in an age where people can reach large or if not always large, then certainly quite engaged audiences and make um, considerable amounts of money through self-publishing and sort of quasi-self-publishing forms on the internet. And it just seems to me like that, like business models change. And and so in this case, the, the traditional publishers have consolidated. And at the same time that that has happened, uh, writers who want to reach audiences and get paid for it have, uh, have, have in, in many ways more options than ever, right? And it's easier to do without having to go through a middleman. And so now we don't have... You know, we, now we don't have to to go through a publisher where a junior assistant, if the story is correct, and I share Alyssa's uh, skepticism that the story is precisely true as told, just because um, Michael Wolf has a reputation for uh, for embellishment, let's say, and for um, for telling stories that uh, that really read very well um, and may not have every piece of information there, though it's possible. It's certainly possible that the story is precisely true, exactly as told here. Um, but, you know, and and we don't know and we may never know. So I don't want to say that it's certainly um, that it's certainly wrong. But um, no, well, I'm just Penguin, not I'm just in, not bothered in, by the by the in, consolidation. In the story, the, at all. For the record, in the because, story, uh, Penguin Random House did say that they're not publishing it, right. that they that they they but, had asked somebody to compile. So, so again, it and, I, what I said was I share Alyssa's skepticism that this story happened precisely as told with no additional relevant context. Well, it's not um, like Norman Mailer ever did anything else to make people angry no, at him, no, right? No, no, no. I mean, and, and this is, you know, I mean, it, I think that's a sign of a, an advancing, uh, you know, society that, like, we care much more about the title of one of his uh, works than the fact that he stabbed and almost killed his wife. That's really, you know, we're, 
we're morally, progress. I think uh, we're we're making some real progress. That's right. Um, <laughs> we're advancing here, right? You know, and uh, and and it's good that we're focusing on the things that matter. I uh, no, I mean, look, publishers have a right to publish whoever they want to publish, to spend as much money as they want on producing, uh, you know, a, the text of a book, editing the text of a book. Um, uh, the you know and and then deciding to to kill that project uh, to stab it in the eye with a pen knife if or whatever sorry that was tasteless um, uh, no like they have they have the right to do that it doesn't always mean that it doesn't mean their decisions are beyond criticism in any way um, and it's certainly a sign of the times that this sort of project uh, advances and then gets shelved uh, at the same time. It's just always true that certain things are fashionable, certain things aren't, um, that business models change over time. I mean, we, all of us have witnessed massive uh, shifts in the newspaper industry, some of which you might describe as as bad, uh, right? Some of which you might describe as good, but which have, you know, empowered some people and disempowered some other people. And that's, What are the good ones? Well, I mean, I, uh, I actually think that there are some good things about newspapers like the New York Times becoming nationalized in their audience, right? And the fact that, um, because it's not just, because the, like the access to really high quality journalism uh, for average readers now is just, it's just easier than ever. And so it used to be, I, I mean, I remember growing up in uh, where, uh, it, in the Panhandle of Florida, where my dad was, you know, a, a college English professor and like liked to read big city newspapers. And it was quite difficult for him to get a Sunday copy of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal because the local grocery store literally had either two or three copies. And if he got there late enough on Sunday morning, they would be entirely gone. And so then maybe you could go to the college library and read those papers one week later when they finally arrived. But, the, but now we live in a world where anybody just about has access to these things on their phone for a relatively low price and in some cases uh, for free. And so access to that kind of high quality big city journalism has just has has radically improved over over my lifetime in ways that I think people don't really understand or appreciate unless you are old enough to remember when it was genuinely quite difficult to get access to newspapers that weren't from your city, that weren't effectively in, in easy driving distance of your house because everything had to be distributed on paper. At the same and time, local journalism has been catastrophically yeah. hollowed out. And so people have much less high quality information about their own communities. I mean, there are new models popping up for this stuff too. I mean, Substack is subsidizing this stuff and Axios just announced a, a big expansion of local journalism. Again, I'm not I mean, saying and, that and it's all that perfectly works. great, but it's not all bad news and these and markets are always shifting in way and like that's that's part of that's part of the, how markets work. I mean, I want to be optimistic about some of these new models, but my brother is wrapping up, you know, a year and a half as a Report for America fellow in Victoria, Texas. And that's a really admirable program that subsidizes the salaries of sort of young, excellent reporters in local papers. But at the same time, you know, the paper that he worked for was really hollowed out around him in some ways. And so... I, you know, I'll be excited to see what the Texas Tribune does under Sul Chan, but that isn't, you know, and there are other models like that that are doing interesting things, but it's really hard and it's not necessarily easy to replace what's been lost over time, but we've gotten but very I, far afield. <laughs> yeah, we have, we have, we have, but I think these are similar, <laughs> these are similar debates and similar arguments that are happening across the publishing industry, because I do think that, I again, I, I think that the, the real issue here 
is less, you know, will this thing get published? I mean, you can go, you can go to Descent Magazine's website right now and read The White Negro if you want to. Like, you can actually go on the internet and and read this essay. It's it's available. Um, and but it's that available, arguably, to more people than it was available to in 1985 or 1978. That doesn't change the fact that uh, we are we are still looking at a uh, a situation where a a sh- radically shrinking number of publishing houses can just say eh, it's not worth it's not worth the headache internally. We don't want to have to deal with our cranky staffers who have too much, who frankly have too much power now. That's, that's, we could, we, that's a debate for another time. Um, but the, I actually think that's in some ways, the more interesting debate here is why have major publishers allowed it? Again, let's presume that this is, that this is true enough. Why have major publishers allowed junior staffers basically to become internal house censors for what they're going to publish, right? And it's not censorship if the government doesn't do it, right? And I, I don't mean to say that it is literally it is they, literally, it is literally a censorship violation the, of the First Amendment. It's not what I'm saying at all, and I'm not Peter joking Sugarman with Reason that, yet, magazine. right? Um, at the same time, the fact that it's now just sort of being at, that, like we've seen this before. It's this is not a story that is, as you said, Sonny. This is a story that that rings true just because it's something that we know does happen in the publishing industry. Um, And to me, that's the concerning thing and the strange thing here. Now, look, like I said, there's always going to be material that's sort of uh, fashionable and material that has become unfashionable and publishing houses have every right to publish whatever they want or don't. At the same time, it's a little odd that that sort of sensibility has come to dominate or at least to have the kind of influence that it has. Maybe it's not totally dominating, but uh, but it does. It has a it has real purchase in major cultural institutions in a way that uh, that I guess I find at least a little odd and perhaps concerning as well. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that decreased competition has led to an increased chance of a dead author getting blacklisted for a half-century-old essay? Alyssa? Uh, it's a controversy, but also I want more reporting on this story. Uh, Peter? I want more reporting before I even dis- – it's, con- it's a non-troversy. I'm going to – let's just get to go with non-troversy. It's definitely a controversy. I'm sorry. This is, you you don't you don't get to cancel Norman Mailer on my watch. Controversy. All right. If you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Even Norman Mailer would have hated it. Uh, please head over to atma.bulwark.com where we'll have a special bonus episode on our favorite non-Doctor Strange love, very important qualifier there, satires. Uh, speaking of satires, on to the main event. Don't look up. Writer-director Adam McKay's new satire about the ineffectual response to climate change and the failure of institutions like governments, businesses, uh, and the media writ large to make the changes he and star Leonardo DiCaprio want to see made in the world. A comet hurtling towards Earth serves as a stand-in for climate change. It's a very long, extended metaphor here. After doctoral candidate Kate DiBiaschi, who's played by Jennifer Lawrence, discovers the meteor, she and Dr. Randall Mindy, who's played by Leo, uh, head to Washington, D.C. to convince President Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, to do something to stop the oncoming apocalypse. After trying to ignore the problem so she can focus on a SCOTUS nomination going sideways uh, and the oncoming midterm election, Orlean and her chief of staff, 
and son, Jason, uh, who's played by Jonah Hill in this movie, spring into action only to be sidetracked again when a huge donor demands that the asteroid be allowed to crash into Earth so it can be mined for its precious metals. Um, there are elements here that I found deeply funny. I thought Jonah Hill was great. I thought there's a there's a very there's a wonderful running gag about a general who charges uh, the scientists for snacks in the White House break room that made me laugh out loud at least two, maybe three times. Um, and uh, there's something darkly prescient about the way Leo's scientist character falls prey to the siren song of celebrity. Um, I think Kevin Williamson, writing in National Review, made the best case for the film in that it is a damning indictment uh, of those in power at virtually every level, um, even outside the context of climate change. It's just about the failure of the elite class, and there's there's something to that. Um, but the whole thing the, the whole thing does not work. It just it doesn't work as a whole. Um, and on on this show, I talk a lot about how the biggest problem with Netflix and their originals is that there's no executive anywhere in the studio who has the inclination or the ability or the power, perhaps, to sit a director down and say, this thing that you're doing is not working. You need to trim it by half an hour and you need to refocus your energies on what matters to the story. You need to tighten it up in every way imaginable, both running time and thematically. Don't Look Up is absolutely the best example of this happening. There's a kernel of a good movie in here, one that effectively skewers media, activists, politicians, and the general populace alike. But McKay and Bernie bro David Sirota, who has a story credit, are too scattered to focus on it. They, they're weaving in complaints about the Supreme Court, and there's an extended Donald Trump metaphor here, and there, there are contradictions within the film itself, just in terms of what is what the plans are, what is being told to the people, how everybody is responding to it. it. It doesn't work. It needed like two more passes on the script, and it needed... Uh, after it was shot to have uh, I don't know, Walter Murch or somebody go in there and be like, all right, we're taking this thing apart and putting it back together. That said, uh, despite all of that, I think I'm pretty clearly the person who liked this film most of all in this group. Which is uh, Peter, hilarious. Which is, which is very funny because I am the right of the left, right, and center of this, this program. But I enjoyed parts of it. I, and I thought, I will say, the other good thing I will say about it is I found the ending deeply poignant. The, the image of the family sitting around the table waiting for doom, uh, really hit a nerve with me. I like that. But <laughs> I, how again, you feel I, eating dinner I, every I night, am, Sonny. Is every this how I feel every day. Uh, this uh, so I I like this movie most of all, which is very funny. Uh, I'm sure Adam McKay is laughing his head off right now just thinking about that. Uh, Peter, what did you make of Don't Look Up? Well, it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be, and and it's a weird movie because no, I I thought this was going to be a complete disaster just based on. Uh, Alyssa's texts and on stuff I'd, you know, sort of seen passing through my Twitter feed. And I guess I came away from it thinking kind of what you said, that there's a kernel of a movie that works. It's it's not just that there's a, there's a kernel of a movie. It's that nearly every idea is a good one. There's actually very few terrible ideas in this movie, with the maybe sort of exception of the central metaphor, which is just is actually not a very good metaphor for global warming. And that's yeah. a problem in that the movie really, really clearly wants it to be a metaphor for global warming and not for anything else. It's actually a much better metaphor for, the, you know, the what pandemic. you said, okay. uh, for the pandemic, yeah. for the, you know, for uh, just for like as a way of thinking about elite failure, right, as a sort of insight into that. Um, but I actually think nearly every scene in this movie works on paper. Right. Like imagine being in the pitch room for any scene in this movie 
And it starts right with like you've you've got the the discovery of the the comet, and in, instead of being like the heroic scientists who are like we've got to tell the president, they're like oh holy crap we're gonna die, and they just melt down and like are complete like turn into blobs of gelatin. It's a great idea for how to twist that scene. Then they go to the White House, and the White House doesn't have time for them. In fact, like that's how when you are not already the most important thing, obviously when you're to the president. You just sit there and wait for the president to have time for to talk to you. And it's like the White House is, is a bizarre and weird place full of bizarre and weird characters, even in a totally normal and functioning administration, just by its nature. Um, uh, the the joke about the the the, you know, the uh, Pentagon guy who keeps who charged them for chips and how Jennifer Lawrence just can't get over it is great. Um, I think the Timothy Chalamet character weirdly works despite having almost nothing to do in this movie. It seems like a, a reaction to a studio note um, uh, or or to somebody saying at some point, wait, shouldn't Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio kind of like have a love story? And the writers wanting to be like, no, they shouldn't. So we're going to introduce Timothy Chalamet, who does exactly one thing in this film, and that's to pray at the very end of the movie. Uh, well, but, can I? Yeah, I, go ahead. I want to interject. I, I want to interject there because I don't think it's a studio note. It feels like the writers self-consciously thinking we need to have a sympathetic yes. character who codes conservative. Yeah, that's and, that's basically and in their right. Mind, like evangelical Christian is like uber. It's like the most conservative thing you can. And be. I actually, I think this movie makes an attempt to undermine its own sort of condescension and uh, it's you know it's smugness and pretenses at nearly every step of the way it is not a, it is a movie that tries not to be like a smug condescending left-wing morality tale and then totally fails at it at a, a, in nearly every scene because adam mckay just can't take enough steps away from his own perspective his his vision here is just too limited um and it just it ultimately it doesn't work at the same time, I, I I wanted to take every one of these scenes, rewrite and reshoot them, make a movie that clocks in at two hours and four minutes rather than two hours and twenty five or whatever this is, and 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 Keep like make down. a good movie out of it. Uh, we, I think we could get this down to one hundred five minutes pretty without without uh, too much without losing too much. I'm going to give you an hour and fifty three. <laughs> Doctor Strange <laughs> that's Love my is ninety five minutes long, and that dealt with an actual nuclear apocalypse. <sighs> that wasn't so, even I mean, all that good yeah. a movie. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> Alyssa, kidding, what, what did you movie. make of Don't Look Up? When you started watching this, we started getting texts from you that <laughs> sat, was like increasingly panicked. You were like, I'm going to have to sit through another two hours of this movie. What is happening to me? <laughs> yeah, I had to watch this movie um, sort of in fragments because uh, I, I did not have childcare this weekend. And I guess I'm the target audience for this movie and was definitely the one of the three of us who hated it the most. Um the first thing I hated about it is something that Peter alluded to, which is that the metaphor does not work on any level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a as a Kim Stanley Robinson reader, like there are good ways to make make fiction about climate change and about possible responses to it. But that fiction works in part because it understands, you know, a couple of things that are real about climate change. One, that it's an ongoing process rather than a sort of single catastrophic thing that's going to happen at a definite date. 
Two, that the effects of it are sort of multifarious and, you know, affect different populations differently and sometimes uh, behave in surprising ways. Like there's a reason that we've moved away from the phrase global warming to climate change because we've come to understand that part of what happens as the climate changes is more extreme weather in both directions. Um, And also, frankly, the responses to it are really hard, right? And this is something that it's very easy to say that climate change is the existential crisis of our generation, that something has to be done about it. But in reality, a lot of things probably have to be done about it. And none of them are particularly sort of Armageddon-style single missions to knock an asteroid out of orbit or whatever. They are, you know, it's things like building, you know, vertical indoor farming in, uh, you know, in urban areas so we can have greater access (laughs) to food and coming up with novel methods of carbon sequestration and, you know, switching to different kinds of energy. It's like, it's a lot of little things. And, you know, part of what's interesting about Robinson's fiction is that it acknowledges that if you want to change a planetary ecosystem, you're going to have to do a lot of experiments. Some of them aren't going to work and some of them are going to play out in ways that you just can't possibly imagine. And, you know, a, a comet is not a good metaphor for that, right? Like a comet in the movie, the danger is obvious. It is definite, right? There's this emphasis on like the comet is definitely going to hit the planet in you know six months and fourteen days. Um, and there's because like of the math. And there's an, the math the and math, the science tells us yes. And there's like one clear thing that we should do about it, and that just that is not the case with climate change at all. And I say that as someone who, again, is like of the left who is nerdily excited about, you know, some of the interesting ways people are coming up with to switch us to different kinds of energy consumption, food growth, you know, climate adaptation, et cetera. It's just the metaphor is wrong. The second thing that drove me insane about this is a cinematic thing. And that's, you know, there are, throughout the movie, there are all of these sort of collages of images that are meant to suggest how you know, valuable and precious life on Earth is and, like, what's going to be lost if the comet hits. And they all look kind of terrible, right? I mean, this isn't even planet Earth-quality footage that, you know, bowls you over with the majesticness of biodiversity on Earth and human experience. They just, I mean, it looks like they bought a, they bought a bunch of stuff from, like, whatever the video equivalent of Getty Images is, yeah. right? They, well, they, 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 bought, they went to no, Massachusetts. Getty. They bought a bunch of stock Getty f- videos, basically. They That's went to Massachusetts like. and shot during a pandemic for a couple of months. Sure, but you can you can license better footage than this, right? Like, it exists. They just, you know, all of these testimonies, like, what's worth saving actually end up serving the opposite purpose. They kind of undercut each other. Um, and none of them, you know, none of the these repeated intrusions into the narrative are nearly as effective as that dinner table scene, right? I mean, if you want to trim a bunch of the movie, cut out every single one of those, you know, montages because they just don't work. Yeah. And finally, I don't think most of the characters really come across as people. I mean, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio gets the most to do in the movie. He's the person with sort of an actual character arc. But like Jennifer Lawrence's character is just like she is just a cutout sort of stoner astronomer millennial. And just almost nobody in this movie comes across as an actual person. And When I think about sort of earlier McKay movies, they're both much better as in the big short at explaining a complicated issue in a way that is sort of narratively dynamic. 
and creating characters that you want to spend more time in, as in the Anchorman franchise, right? I mean, you know, we'll talk about this on the subscriber episode later, but Anchorman is both a, you know, a movie about a very specific set of issues. And its characters are sort of real, indelible, eccentric people. Um, And also, frankly, that movie is funny in a way that this is not. I think I texted you guys at one point that I'm pretty sure the only time I laughed out loud in the movie is when the comet's about to hit Earth and there is like some anchor on the Patriot News Network or whatever it's called saying that, you know, the story that it's on top of everyone's mind. That's uh, Dan Pochetti, played by Michael Chiklis. Yes. Uh, Topless Urgent Care Centers, right? And like that's, that's a great combination of words like that's but there are four really good comedic words in this whole movie. It's just not very funny. I do think that's I, a good point about the lack of humanity in a movie that tries to argue that the like the for the value of human connection and the human experience, there isn't a whole lot of of humanity to appreciate here because everyone is such a dipshit. Yeah, like I mean, this is a movie that kind of inadvertently makes the case that it's a really good thing that the comment just destroyed us all. You know, yeah, and that a bunch of billionaires and the former president of the United States are going to be eaten by alien deer kudu things on a different planet. What was it? Was it called like a bronchosaurus? Some 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 ridiculous word. Some ridi- we haven't even talked about Mark Rylance's character, uh, and we haven't talked about who he plays. That he plays a billionaire who uh, who is the one who decides that the asteroid has to crash into Earth so we can mine it for all the space metals. Uh, and we haven't talked about the Morning Joe slash Good Morning America uh, style uh, parody of the the media establishment with Kate Blanchett the Daily Rip, and Tyler Perry. Which I uh, I think is actually the best thing about the movie. I, yeah, that's probably I right. Think, I don't know that it totally works. And there are, and again, it's one of these things where every one of these scenes I think works really well on paper or in a pitch room or on a on a whiteboard right you sort of the idea for it is a good idea and then the execution is not quite there at the same time tyler perry as a as a morning joe type uh paired with kate blanchett uh right as as his counterpart they're so good like they're appealingly awful in a way that i think the rest of this movie kind of lacks and partly that's just that kate blanchett and tyler perry are just wonderful screen presences, even when they're playing people who you are supposed to hate. Yeah, and and Blanchett's the one person who gets like a really well drawn in character, where you le- you learn basically that she is a genius who is doing this incredibly dumb job and has to be drunk all the time to function to sort of tamp down her intelligence to this like kind of cheerfully besotted you know level where she can do this idiotic work when she's vastly smarter than she is. And yeah, I think that's probably the thing that works best. But at the same time, and again, you know, I keep coming back to Anchorman, I'll come back to it again in the subscriber episode. But you know, this just, I felt like their shtick had a much less strong grasp of how cable news works and what's wrong with it than McKay seemed to have when he made Anchorman all those years ago. And I... The main critique is that it, the that sort of news operates on this level of sort of constant pleasantness, but it doesn't necessarily get how cable news thrives on like petty drama. I mean, 
a huge mistake that the show makes is that if a bunch of astronomers showed up and was like, a comet is going to hit Earth in six months, cable news would go absolutely nuts for that, right? Like, yeah. they would, it would be... Even like, if the astronomers were saying there's only a 0.1% chance yes. because yeah. cable news lives for the apocalypse. They yes. want it to be almost the apocalypse all the, all time. the time. And if they had... And, if they had an opportunity to say it's definitely going to be the apocalypse for the next six months, right? They would and take it. I mean, well, it's this- another reason that the comet is such a terrible metaphor for yeah. climate change, right? Because you know the way that, you know, like, it's true that cable news spends much more time on sort of petty political drama than it does on an existential issue like climate change. But it does that because climate change is slow moving and multivalent and hard to explain. And not cinematic in the way a comet heading for Earth is. Yeah, but can I can I actually disagree with that a little bit? Because one of the complaints uh, the movie makes is that the media doesn't focus enough on climate change. It is an ignored topic yeah. that, you know, it's not sexy enough. Yeah. I just – I don't know what universe yeah. this movie is living in because that is not – it's not my experience as a reader of the news. It is not – climate change is not an issue where like – I see a real lack of of discussion of the topic. Yeah, I think cable news probably doesn't devote attention to it in the way that the print press does. I mean, my and to, you know, partially your employer, Sonny, uh, the Washington Post, I mean, if you look at the um, the app, uh, if you read the Washington Post through our app, there is a section of climate change stories sort of on the front page of that every single day. Uh, the New York Times, their opinion section, not and like, I hate to give our rivals any credit, did this incredible package about climate change and the role it's playing in every single country in the world that I thought was just beautifully done online. Like, there is a lot of attention going into this. The yeah. Times has also been doing a great series on the mining challenges in moving to a, a renewable energy economy. And so... You know, this is an area that actually is getting fascinating substantive coverage. It's not necessarily getting that on cable news. And I think, like, that's fair. But that's also symptomatic of one of the other movie's problems, which is that it treats not just cable news as the central fact of, a, of, of the American media experience, but it treats essentially Morning Joe as, like, the place where Americans get their news – which when is fact, yeah. which is a view that you might have if you were like a completely blinkered inside the Beltway creature, and I say this is literally someone who owns property inside the Beltway, right? So who, like who is a blinkered yes, inside the Beltway like, creature? Yeah. The, for the idea record. that 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 a that like one talk show on 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 MSNBC is like the place where most Americans get their news. And yeah, I understand there's dramatic compression. You got to sort of like squeeze all this stuff into, you know, a single avatar, but that rising Joe, which yes, is something that for a time, especially several years ago in a, a certain type of beltway professional was obsessed with morning Joe, but that's not normal. Like that might've been what David Sirota experienced as normal in his social circles, but that's not in any way how, People get their news unless you, you know, work in politics and can I say think that my, everyone I, else the, does too. I do want to say one one last nice thing uh, about about wow, Sunny. What before, what did before you we, before like, we move on? Who put honey joke, in your Cheerios this morning? Yeah. <laughs> the funniest joke in the whole movie is the BuzzFeed style reporter yes. who publishes the confessional <laughs> essay. Yes, I slept with the crazy comet lady because Kate DiBiaschi becomes a meme huh. because she freaks out on the Morning Joe show. Also, because uh, the comet's and, named after and her. And then 
and goes super viral. And the, uh, the her boyfriend, who we meet a couple times earlier in the movie, stabs her in the back with the "Yes, I slept with the crazy comet lady." And that is, but and, and that is very it funny. Into a book deal. And parlays it into a book deal. That's very funny and very real. No. That is like the realest thing that could have happened in, in that that whole movie. I w- I will say. Adam McKay and David Sorota taking down BuzzFeed, right? Like the- taking it to BuzzFeed. Suck on that, millennials. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Don't Look Up? Alyssa. I'm going to say don't look straight ahead into oh. your screen to watch this movie. It's terrible. Oh Peter. It was better than I expected it to be, but thumbs down. Uh, I give it a thumbs down, though. Again, I, I, I there were things about it that I, I quite enjoyed. So, you know, that's me. Old Squish Sunny. Uh, that is it for this week's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on our favorite non-strange love satires, which is a great movie, unlike what somebody on this podcast foolishly said earlier. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Next week.